Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. My guest this week is Al Murray, whose new book is Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War. Al, welcome. Now, you'll be used to being asked this, but <laughs> we know you best as a comedian. And here you come galloping <laughs> yes. out. I mean, it's like when the keyboard player out of D. Ream turns out to be an expert astrophysicist or, or <laughs> you know, Nadine Dorries, the competitor on I'm a celebrity, kind of turns out to be a politician. There's obviously real deep knowledge and interest on military history with you. Where is, yes. is this a sort of academic specialism that's just, you know, took a backseat to another career or a private hobby? Or how, how did you come it's to a it? Pro- it? It's a private passion, really. I, I came to it because my father is hugely interested in the subject of the Second World War. He was born in 1937. His father did all sorts of strange stuff we think with the foreign office but we don't know what it all was my mother's father was killed in the fighting outside dunkirk in a place called harzebrook and she never knew her dad so he was killed before she was born so the war sort of hung heavy in our family's footprint i think and my dad was really 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 interested in it so we would when i was a boy we would you know i remember we went to normandy you know and went and looked at pegasus bridge and or the con canal properly and the Mayville Battery and the Mulberry Harbour and stuff like that. And he would talk about what had happened there and talk about the battlefields. And and I would, those were the books I'd be given when I was a boy. And so I, it, it very much became a thing I was interested in. And then I, history itself was a thing that I, at school, I, I found I could make work for myself. I was very interested in it, although not so interested in the Tudors that I wanted to do it three times for O-level, A-level, and then as part of my degree. And so, yeah, history's always sort of hung around and I'll happily pick up a book about the Second World War and, and be informed by it and say, gosh, I didn't know that, which is very much my approach to this is I really don't, I don't, the, the more I look into it, the more I realise I know nothing about it. I know a vanishingly tiny amount. Well, you do, you do talk about the limitless kind of scope for investigation and the complexity yeah. of the whole, you know, multi-theatre, yeah. worldwide, worldwide war. But there is a sort of through line in the book, which I think is well set out in the title, is How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War. And what's a surprise to me is someone who knows, you know, you say you know little about the Second World War, I know much less, (laughs) is the first couple of years, quite how badly we were being cuffed kind of worldwide. Oh, well, the the first three years, really, if you, you know, you you get into what's happening in Burma and and, uh, Singapore, Malaya, Burma. It, it's absolutely terrible. And what's interesting is, is in 1940, you can argue that that the British are sort of caught out by sort of German vim and application. And the argument is that the Germans sort of reset how you do how you do things in 1940, apply the same lessons that everyone learned for the First World War, and draw different conclusions basically, and come come find a different way of winning. But by 1942, where the, when the British are being regularly and appallingly tonked by the Japanese, wherever they run into them, there's no excuse for any of it. And and in 1941, you know what happens in Crete? That there really there really is no excuse for any of it. The British do recover, and that they do find a way to win because the because by 1944-45, the British Army is this insanely efficient, relentless, crushing machine of war. What 21st Army Group were able to do in 44-45 in Northwest Europe is, is, is truly extraordinary, especially if you compare it to what the British Army was capable of in 1940-41-42, which is all... Well, you, you say the sort of crap. three iterations of the British Army, and the first is the yeah. BEF, which yeah. isn't 
isn't all that. Now, to get a sense of, of, of why we were on the... I mean, we'll move on to the, the, the yeah. late, later part of the war when it all got good. But your argument seems to be, and correct me if I'm not framing it right, that part of the problem is that between the wars, because nobody expected yeah. there to be another one, the British Army yeah. or the British Armed Services essentially went back to being a kind of colonial gendarmerie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in 1919, is heaving this huge sigh of relief that they haven't got to do this ghastly war fighting. I mean, that's a modern expression, but fighting this ghastly continental war, this great big thing with a civilian army, that is the thing they really cannot abide is the fact that they're having to cope with all sorts of civilians and their, their officer recruitment has been interfered with by interfering politicians who obviously want to bring more people, you know, you need more more officers in the First World War. And so so standards are, as the army brass see it, lowered to include people who go to grammar school and stuff. It's a ghastly imposition <laughs> on the army. And the army kicks loads of those kind of reforms into the long grass and goes back to proper soldiering, cavalry competitions, playing polo, drinking gin and fighting police actions in unruly parts of the empire, which is really what it's designed to do, aimed to do, it's been comfortable doing really since the Crimean War. Because every time every, every time anything gets amplified up into a into a peer-on-peer encounter, to use a modern jargon, you know, interstate war, they do really, really badly. <laughs> to, 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 Crimea's a disaster. The Boer War, which sort of is the, the police action that goes out of control, is a disaster. First stage of the First World War is, you know, I mean, a, there is a relentless pattern with the British Army that it takes it a while to figure out actually what's going on which is one of the genius parts of the way it works as well, though, is that there is no central doctrine because there's no point having one. Well, that's a, a, one of the things that you say, which intrigued me, is that there is this sort of no central doctrine. It's all quite loosey-goosey. Regional commanders yep. are making up their own yep. way of fighting war, which multi-territorial colonial situation presumably is not a bad thing. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, the thing is, is you you know, you have the two schools. So there's the Woolwich School, which is for people who can't afford Sandhurst, of officer training, where engineers and, and artillerymen are taught. And that's sort of scientific soldiering. So you what bridge loads you need to calculate and how you fire your artillery indirectly and all that sort of stuff. That's logarithms that, that you can create doctrine for. But the rest of it, how you run an infantry section in the Hindu Kush or how you police Malta or how you garrison Gibraltar or or whatever comes your way or what you're going to do in Sudan, whatever comes your way. The sort of thinking is, well, we'll leave that to the major generals. We'll leave that to the brigadiers. We'll leave it. We'll let it trickle down to the colonels. They can sort that out because there's just no point fastening to anything. So the things they fasten to are like regimental tradition and bullshit, as soldiers call it, you know, polishing boots and drilling and and the business of how you actually send people up a mountain and, to, to deal with, as they would see it, unruly locals. It's, it's kind of, well, we'll work that out when it comes up. Yeah. It's, it's the most extraordinary institutional approach to, to the problems. And, you know, one of the guys I pick in the book, Francis Tuca, who's a... I was going to say, we should commanded... be clear, the structure of the book well, is, yeah, yeah. is a well, yeah, series yeah. of case, case in... studies, isn't it? Of, of... Yes, he's a case in point, but yeah, an example of exactly that. Yeah, yeah. so, so the, book's, the book has this thread that the army is this loosey-goosey organisation and then basically, and hasn't really got much time for professionals or people with of a professional or intellectual temperament, and then in the end has to resort to them and and 
sort of listen to them and and bite the bullet, really. I wanted to write about it because the whole thing fills me with dismay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's, it's not all, you know, not all of these chapters are, as it were, in celebration. I mean, Tuca is someone you've got time for, though, isn't he? Well, yes, because he's he's very, very interesting. And, and so Tuca was an Indian army officer and, you you know, you would, you would choose, you would decide. You'd either stay in the British Army, you'd go to the Indian Army. There was a fair deal of cross-fertilisation and you'd tend to go to both staff colleges if you're trajectory was to get what we'd call a star now to get your red tabs and so he Tuka was an Indian army officer and he was a but he was a theoretician he very much regarded himself as an intellectual he wrote pamphlet stuff in between the wars under under all sorts of pen names because he because the stuff he had to say no one wanted to hear and all this sort of thing and he's very very interesting because the army is, is pretty thin on thinkers as it were and in their attitude to them and their production of them. You know, the B- B- British Army doesn't have universities. You don't you don't get a degree when you leave Sandhurst the way that you do from West Point, for instance. There isn't an intellectual tradition. So he's he's quite interesting for that. And he's, he wrote books about the theory of war after, after the Second World War, like grand theory books, emulating sort of Klaus Witz and Sun Tzu and people like that, trying to talk about the pattern of warfare and what warfare is and how it works and how he learned these lessons how he would have applied them in the Second World War if, if only he'd been given the opportunity. And there are an awful lot of books after the war, which is, if only they'd listened to me. But he, he's a really, really interesting because he's a, he is this intellectual with a view of how things ought to be done, coming into collision with reality. And in the end, after all, his fine theories are all very well, but the thing he has to admit he needs in the end is the technology. Yes, yeah, so I was the, going to the, say, the, the turnaround, I mean, one of the arcs in the book is... Quite how badly we are beaten up by Rommel to start yep. with, and quite how extraordinarily yep. that's turned around. A lot of that's down to technology, isn't it? It's down to just yes. Well, and you can see why some of the decisions that sort of hold the British Army hostage are made. It's the anti-tank gun, the two-pounder, that is emblematic of where this procurement thing goes wrong. And again, you know, some of these problems are contemporary then and they're contemporary now. They're eternal problems of what on earth, which weapon system do you buy and when is it going to be delivered and what difference will that make? And so the two pounder is this gun that by the end of the thirties is absolutely state of the art. You could put a round through any, any target if you're in France and the tank comes around the corner, but the minute you're in the desert and there are five mile distances, it's no use to anybody, but the British have had to buy that gun and have had to buy tons of those guns. Cause at Dunkirk, they leave all their anti-tank guns in France. They haven't got any, they haven't got time to rebore their factories move to a new weapon that they don't know if it will work that's untried so they stick rather than twist they stick with the two pounder and that blights the british's ability to prosecute offensives against rommel in in 1941 and defensively fight rommel because because in the end the german tank can stand off and shell the anti-tank gun before the anti-tank gun can deal with the tank and so that's that's as basic as it can be and the, the british tanks are also armed with this weapon so they're also vulnerable and until that problem's solved you can whistle really and the the, the british what's interesting is the british do very well in a in a, an offensive at the end of 41 and not rumble back but by the start of the following year being being kicked in the teeth in return and have no answer and it's because the tech has not caught up with their ambition and that's really really interesting because the second world war is a war of, you know is a war of technology there's no arguing with that but then you've also Technology is more than just, is my gun bigger than yours? It's just, my, do my men have confidence in the technology? And if the men have confidence in the technology, they'll fight. They'll do what you tell them. 
But if they don't have confidence in the technology, no, they won't. And they'll they'll get in their lorry and they'll drive off. Which is <laughs> which is which is which is what happened because Isle of Line offensives in in early forty two in the spring early summer forty two. The British Army thought, well, nope. The, you know, the soldiers, the officers thought, well, we've been given kit that won't do the job, so we're gonna we're gonna bugger off back to Alexandria. Thanks very much. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so shades of Russia and Ukraine now. Well, exactly, exactly, you know, exactly. Now, obviously, you know, there are some big names, and I'm intrigued that you open with perhaps the biggest in British military yeah. law, Bernard Montgomery, but you take a different line on him. It's, you know, your subtitle for that chapter is Before Monty. Yes. And a great deal of the chapter is not about flanking manoeuvres, but about VD. I have to yeah. say you make... Syphilis sound really quite unpleasant. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, so much of the Second World War, I think you have to remember its 19th century context. So much of it is the, the deliverance of the circumstances of the, the First World War, which is after arguably the end of the 19th century, long 19th century, if you, if you subscribe to that view. And syphilis is, syphilis is the public health problem of the 19th century. And of the First World War, it is the absolute number one moral panic public health problem with soldiers and prostitutes and in rates of infection back in the UK that are so that are so high doctors are brought back from Flanders to try and do something about it. It's a huge part of the picture of the First World War. More people hospitalised with VD than with trench foot in the First World War. And the First World War is the trench foot war in popular imagination, right? So when the Second World War starts, of course, the people whose dial has been set by the First World War, by this Victorian conflict, if that's how you want to put it, they're going to be thinking about this. They're going to be worrying about this. And they're also going to fall into their camps. So Montgomery falls into the, we need to take precautions. We need to make sure our men are fit and well. And we need to we need to control how they go about getting their jollies. And we need to keep an eye on it because the army regards it as a self-inflicted wound. It takes men out of the front line. It helps the enemy. And then there's the other school of thought that says sex is naughty and wrong and we mustn't even ever talk about it. And VD is corrupting of the working classes and and that sort of strange, actually progressive eugenic stripe about how working class people are morally degenerate. And VD is a sort of a beacon that alerts us to that fact. (laughs) And that's what happens at the start of the Second World War, when the army basically faces the problem of it sitting around twiddling its thumbs in the... Because as we all know, the war doesn't start until May of 1940. Not properly. There's no no infantry fight. There's no land fighting for the West. So you've got board soldiers sat around digging positions with inadequate kit to train properly. So what are they going to do? They're going to go go and try and get laid the way their dads did in in Flanders 20 years earlier, or their uncles. Never, not their fathers. Never their fathers. But so what happens at the start of the Second World War is the the army has to address this fact, and I think. So much of the inheritance of the interwar years is that the the people in charge of the army, they're career officers, they're people who have turned their back on the idea of fighting, or there's a little strand of the professionals who've somehow managed to sort of keep their heads down and forge their way through and make names for themselves in Palestine and places like that where there is fighting. And Montgomery's one of those people. So he's here at the start of the Second World War. He he's like, right, I need to sort out my men's health, and he runs directly into the other lobby who don't want him to. And I think that's that's fascinating. And it's almost like the last trumpet, because the, the, the army then does get its act together regarding sexual health pretty quickly. And it's sort of like the last blast of the Victorian trumpet 
moral trumpet before the Second World War, which we see as the great modernising event. Any serious historian would tell you the 60s are the product of the 40s. That's when the door gets kicked open to progressive Britain. But in 1939, there's this sort of attempt by the chaplains of the BEF to, to sack Montgomery for bringing this up. It's amazing. And, and, and I, know, I didn't want to write a series of just so stories, but that really, that really is a, that really feels like one, you know, like, and if they'd lost him, and obviously there, there are plenty of other people who probably could have did what he did at El Alamein, but he's such a peculiar man and such a galvanising figure and such a pro. He is a, he's an awful person and a terrible prick and upset all sorts of people and all that sort of stuff. But he's a brilliant, brilliant officer when the moment comes. But the army came within a, you know, within a whisker of getting rid of him over something where he was being entirely sensible yeah. and not being a prick, did, not being a prick, you know. <laughs> Rare moment. Did, yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, <laughs> among the other, you know, larger than life stroke, deeply obnoxious characters. Yes. Who have, whose legends have fallen down. You know, you've got a couple of chapters here on the, on the Burma campaigns. Yes. And I sense you're not quite the fan of Ord Wingate. <laughs> That, <laughs> that others have been. Well, I, the thing with Wingate, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to write about him. And then with the with the podcast I do with James Holland, that we have ways of making you talk. We've been republishing a, some memoirs and stuff. We've been doing a sort of sideline in that, and one of them was a was a memoir about the Chindits that a friend of mine had given me an old copy of because he knew that he knew the author. And I read this book, and it's by a guy called Richard Rhodes James, and. There's a series of sketches of Wingate in that book because he tries to get to grips with who Wingate was and how one man was able to, first of all, sort of blag this entire thing out of the British army. And then secondly, how he, how on earth he motivated his men because the second Chindit expedition in particular is totally extraordinary because of the abject failure of the first. The first expedition by any measure is a total disaster. Wingate returns from the jungle expecting to be court-martialed. I think he takes just over 2,000 men into the jungle with him. After it, only 600 are ever fit for combat again because they're either killed, wounded or ruined by disease. His exercises, there's full exercises in the jungle and, and men are being invalided out of the army doing that because he's driving them so hard. So I, I succumbed to, to trying to write about Wingate. But again, one of the things that doesn't happen with him is, is people don't sit him in the British Army's imperial context. Which goes back to, you know, you've got to put him in the context of Gordon and people like that, you know, taking columns up into the unknown, taking on the locals or whatever. And his, his father's first cousin, Rex Wingate, was at Omdurman with Kitchener. And so was part of that imperial soldiering, you know, flying column tradition and school. And I think Wingate fits in that better than he does in the modern special forces tradition, which is the one he's sort of, the one people try and plug him into is he's part of sort of what the SAS do. And, and he's part of what happens in Malaya after the war. And he's part of that tradition. I don't think he is. I think he's, because he's this, you know, burning eyed member of the Plymouth brethren who would, who would beat his men, slap his men, beat his men and all this sort of stuff. He's a, he's a messianic figure and, and self-consciously so and would take his old orders groups in the nude and, and all this sort of stuff, eat raw onions and, 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 Stare at you until you did what did as you were told and all this sort of stuff. And I think he, I think he belongs. He's not a technocratic soldier like the SAS people style themselves. You know that it's all down to techniques and having it all worked out and selection. He's this sort of burning firebrand bloke. And and of course when he's killed, 
you know, a few weeks into the second chintz operation, the kind of genie go, the genie and the bottle are both lost. And the sort of point of the thing and him driving other people on sort of evaporates from from the picture. And I think that's really, really interesting. He he really is a one man band. But what he's been able to do is persuade Churchill to give him a division's worth of infantry, which is absolutely incredible. What he's what he's able to do for the for the second expedition. It's, it's amazing. And that must be because he's an imperialist. Churchill's an imperialist. Churchill was at Omdurman. Churchill sees the connection. Churchill likes the idea of a, a, a chapel pick up his skirts and go into the jungle and beat the Japanese, even though the way he's trying to do it is fundamentally unsound. So it's actually, he's sort of celebrated for these amazing, you know, Rambo-style jungle tactics and so forth, but they yeah. didn't actually work. It was the fact he was persu- no. able to persuade them to send so many men that paved the yeah, way for it didn't work. Bill Slim to well, sort well, it out. The- Exactly, exactly. And the problem for Wingate is, is Slim has understood this question of critical mass in the jungle that you need you need great big formations and they need they need extremely solid roots. And that Wingate is never able to bring a critical mass to bear in, in the battlefield in Burma. He just can't do it because he's trying to travel light. He thinks he can do a flying column thing. Whereas in fact, you know, what Slim understands is you 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 know, you need to be moving an entire army or whole core of people that are self-sustaining and not flying columns of battalions and brigades. Just, you you can't do it. And also trying to move in the jungle on foot. That'll do if you want to lose people, you know, like before you even get into combat and you aren't able to bring enough combat concentration of force to bear on the enemy, the jungle will do for you anyway. And that's the, you know, the scandal of the first expedition is he leaves the wounded behind. And that's the, that's the thing he promises he won't do again. And he does it again. And, and, and the sort of so much of, what happens in command is, you know, there's a deal. There's a deal between the bloke in charge and the men. And the deal in the end is I'm not going to squander your lives and I'm going to take care of you if you're hurt. And and Wingate breaks that deal. Yeah. And another one who comes, you know, a bit off his pedestal. I, I didn't know much of him or, or barely knew more than his name. Bernard Freiberg, who apparently is you know, yes. big in New Zealand. Yes. But yeah. you say he was a bit dim and that well, I, what happened I, in I Crete know, was... I, so Freiburg, he is British, but he went to New Zealand. So he's, and he's given the New Zealand forces to command. Those appointments have a big slab of politics in them. You can't give that job to, you know, a British general. You can't, you can't, his boss might well be Wavell, but you can't give that job to British general. You've got to have a guy who's connected to New Zealand in charge of the New Zealand forces. And he's the best person available. And there's no doubt he's an incredibly heroically brave man. I mean, he's wounded scores of times in the first world war it's extraordinary he's an extraordinary born brave warrior victoria cross the whole thing you know swam ashore at gallipoli to set false beacons to trick the joke he's a you know he's an action hero but the thing that faces him in crete is beyond him is the problem and the systems around him aren't up to the job either because they've not been prepared properly in the interwar years but basically he knows what's, I mean, the, the, the tragedy of Crete is he knows what's going to happen. They've, de- they've deciphered the Luftwaffe's transmissions because the Luftwaffe are slack about using Enigma, for instance. And this is one of the early breakthroughs in the Enigma story. It's not, not like the end of the war where it's industrialised and we do know basically everything that Germans are thinking. Well, they never really know what, quite what they're going to do. But he knows what's coming. He knows there's an airborne landing coming. He knows what, what, what it's likely to be. They know from what happened in France the year before that the Germans are very keen on capturing airfields so they can reinforce. He knows all this, but he doesn't he doesn't make it clear enough to his guys 
on the ground defending the airfields that they absolutely mustn't give them up. The message doesn't quite get through. And there's argument about, you know, lower down the food chain as to who who makes the mistake and why and what their reasoning was and, and all this sort of stuff. But really, the buck has to stop somewhere. And Freiburg, Freiburg quite early on in that battle has decided that we're, oh, we can't win this, so we're going to have to we're going to have to jack it in, even though he outnumbers the Germans three to one or something. And it's it's one of those it's it's a, a really, really bitter episode, especially as by that point, they have they have faced the Germans a lot and they fought the Germans in Greece and they fought them reasonably successful. They fought the Italians very successfully in North Africa. Some in the encounters with the Germans have been disastrous by this point. But Greece has been. But you'd think. Knowing, you know, knowing what's coming. And they really do know everything. They do know the German plan inside out. They know Mercury inside out or pressure Mercury inside out. And he still manages to muff it. It's to, to say he's dim, I don't know. But 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 it just illustrates also that, you know, that, that I tried to use that chapter to illustrate that we do tell a story about this because the Second World War isn't just a historical event. It's a, a fantastic historiographical event. You know, the, the stories we've told ourselves as, as a result are almost as interesting as, is what happens. And one of the stories we tell us is, well, you know, we cracked the Enigma codes, which meant we knew we knew when Hitler was going to next go to the toilet. We knew everything. And knowing everything meant we were able to win. And in this instance, they, they knew everything and still made a complete mess of the battle, <laughs> the British and Commonwealth forces. So, you know, foreknowledge is not to be forearmed, as it were, which I think is really, 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 really interesting that there are other, there are more problems than knowing what the enemy's going to do. You've got to know what you're going to do. <laughs> You've got to have an answer. And he, sadly, he didn't have one. Although, you know, I mean, Crete in the end, it's it's pointless. The Germans are taking it. They don't do anything with it afterwards. It becomes a thorn in their side, maintaining it. But it would have been far better if at that stage of the war, the Commonwealth forces had held on to it. Because we could have done with the victory. You know, the, the politics of war requires victories, even in the short term, you know. Yeah, you talk a lot about morale and these, these virtuous circles, or maybe a strips yeah. of morale, you talk about it. Yeah. Now, there's another kind of paired chapters in as much as Wingate and Slim seem to prepare. But, you know, the Americans coming in. There's, yes. You know, Bradley, who's sort of much lower key, and then obviously yeah. old blood and guts Patton, who's, yeah. you know, <laughs> you have some fun with his reputation. <laughs> Do you see them as a kind of compare and contrast I mean, does one yes. have to pick a favourite? Is it like Superman and Batman? Well, well, yeah. I mean, they are they are both in the DC universe in that respect. I felt writing this book, I was going to have to touch on. I was going to have to touch on Patton because if the Second World War is a historiographical event, he is the all-conquering American general. Even though, you know, he doesn't command at the level that Bradley does. He does. You know, Ike Ike becomes president. He's an incredibly important figure. But Patton is this sort of magnetic point and you you know you can read extraordinary stuff even in academic paper because you you can read stuff which simply seems to involve the sun shining out of patterns behind it's amazing his reputation and also his sort of marmite qualities a lot of people really don't like him that he's brash he's irresponsible and he slaps the, the infamous slapping instance at the at sort of at the center of his second world war career the slapping incidents where he finds a, a, a man sh- suffering terribly from PTSD, as we now call it, and yeah, and slaps him in, slaps him uh, hauls him out of his bed. We don't keep cowards in here. Slaps him and go. I, I, you know, I should shoot the damn lot of you. The whole thing. It's, 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 it's hideous. And he tries to cover it up. Successfully keeps the lid on it for a bit, and then it, you know, it gets to Eisenhower, and Eisenhower saying, "Yeah, tell me this didn't happen." And it did. It did happen. But what's really, I mean, what's interesting about that is, you know, 
in the Civil War, generals would regularly slap their men and ball them out and all that sort of thing. It was, it was a mark of good generalship. And Patton seeing himself as an American man of war, he sees himself in that context. And also, he's sort of acting in good faith because the American army at that point thinks it's got a psychological test that weeds out people who will suffer from uh, combat fatigue. And that that therefore means these blokes are cowards, that they're they're not undergoing some sort of psychological response to the war or psychiatric response to the war to, to combat, that they are, they must be cowards because they've done this, they've done this test, um, which obviously, you know, proves nothing. You know, no one knows who's vulnerable in what way to combat and what, what it'll do to you. But they don't know that at the time. They're still figuring it out. But Patton is the sort of, the way I see, saw them for the book is, you know, the, the two American in, traditions, you know, that Bradley tries to echo the sort of humble guy from the middle of nowhere who's worked his way up the American dream, you know, and he, and the, he's made in the army and, he, and the army is the making of him and gives him the opportunity to succeed and, and is entirely classless in that respect. And that's the thing that's genuinely interesting about the American army is, you know, he, he's a school teacher's son from a mining town in the middle of nowhere and he becomes, you know, five-star general, commands more soldiers than anyone else in the Second World War. It's an, it's an incredible sort of personal achievement and the army enables that. Whereas Patton is a, you know, Patton sees himself as Hannibal and turns himself into Hannibal, creates Hannibal using the army to do it. And so that you've got the rugged individualist and then you've got the, the little guy helped by, a, by the American dream. And you, I think they, they offer contrasting, I mean, in a way, con- contrasting cultural things that the Americans had to bring to the Second World War to get, you know, to get all their rats in a sack to create an army that would work. And the army headquarters is you know that the, the carder in the, in between the wars is small enough to not be kind of careerist but also still big enough to contain very very contrasting types of different people and you know and there's you know who's patrons who so Patton's patron earlier earlier on is Pershing to start with and then he moves his patronage on to MacArthur whereas Bradley sticks to Eisenhower and Marshall throughout which is basically why why in the end Bradley ends up higher up the ladder than the patents is that Patton hasn't quite cultivated the right people. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't totally love each other, did they? I mean, you said, no, there was sort I, of, I mean, Bradley has a, has a cameo in the Patton movie, but yeah, you know, we yeah. turn in his grave. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, they caught the, I mean, John McManus, the American historian, he actually, he calls them frenemies. And he says, that's the jarringly, jarringly anachronistic, but he says that they have this thing where they, they got to get along and they, and they josh along with each other, but you know, Patton's diary is full of what dud Bradley is. And Bradley's manner is, you don't need, but Bradley's whole thing is to eschew Patton's style and blood and guts, blood curdling sort of thing. You know, he tries to cultivate this idea that he's the GI general. He's just like you and me, or just like his men. Cause in lots of ways he is, he is like the doughboy from wherever he is. He does fit that picture. Yeah. Now, another thing that gets mythologized about the war that I know you're, you know, you talk about the, the, the way that the Chindit campaigns were, sort of seen perhaps wrongly as, you know, precursors to the modern special forces. Yeah. You know, the paras, your chapter on Alistair Pearson talks about how we think of the parachute regiment as an amazingly elite thing, but at least to start with, I mean, it's much more diffuse, but parachute warfare seems to have been almost completely useless for most of the Second World War. Is that an overstating of the case? Yes, I mean... Yes, and that this is this is this is the chapter I'm looking forward to my father reading. Because my father was an airborne soldier and knew an awful lot of the characters that, you know, post we knew Pearson, you know, after the war. The thing is, is it's being made up as it goes along. You know, that the people have exper- had experimented with what you how you would insert people by parachute 
in between the wars, and the Russians are very keen on it, and the Germans really take to it. The British poo-poo it. Then, of course, they're on the receiving end of a parachute panic in the summer of 1940 and think, oh, actually, maybe we need to catch up with what the Germans are doing and do it ourselves. But then proceed to... It's just, it's just disaster after disaster. And it's full of people who, go, who are like, absolutely, yeah, I can do that. Absolute gung-ho people. Very, very, very ambitious people. I mean, the, one of the sort of characteristics is how prepared they are to stitch each other up, the officers. I mean, famously, Terence Otway, who on the night of D-Day is at the centre of the Merville battery action, it was an incredible gallant action where, you know, 650 men have parachuted in to take this battery and only 150 make it to the rendezvous and they put the attack in anyway. Otway was colonel of that battalion because he dobbed in his commanding officer because he said he thought his commanding officer had been talking to someone in the pub about the, what they were planning. <laughs> and, so, and so shopped him and, and got him fired so that he could get the job. I mean, well, that was the outcome anyway. And so they're, they're, like, they're, they're people like that, right? And Otway was a brilliant officer, so maybe it was the right thing. Maybe that was the best outcome. But the, it's people like that, you know. And they're all, they all want adventure, but the... There's always the thing, the tension at the heart of the airborne thing in the Second World War is they all want the adventure. They all want to get at the enemy. But because they're, you know, this specialist thing that will be delivered up every so often, they're not in the line. A lot of them are nowhere near as experienced as, you know, say a lieutenant colonel in the Durhams or a major in, the, in a guards battalion because they're not in the line all the time. They turn up, they do their daring do, and then, they, and then they, they're withdrawn and they go and refit and they do another thing. And so there's a there's this peculiar gap between, you know, the ambition and the and the sort of people they've got adventurers and and the the, the very first iteration, the, which are the special service brigades, and they become the special air service brigades. They've got people in who fought on either side of the Spanish Civil War, in their number. You know, there's one officer who who'd fought for the fascists, and the the, the expectation was that were they deployed, were they dropped into somewhere, the, the, the Spanish communists. <laughs> in his in his detachment would kill him <laughs> and then and then get on with whatever they were they were gonna have to do so they're, they're full of these sort of characters yeah, sort of like david english used to call creative tension <laughs> exactly exactly right you know of the, of the warrior kind as well but but we, what, what you end up with is this and it's all state-of-the-art they're inventing these technologies it's a state-of-the-art idea of deployment yet they really don't know what they're doing because how can they and they're all incredibly gung-ho and dead keen to kill as many Germans as they possibly can, all that sort of thing. And so you end up with this sort of this tension between the kind of chaos of, of who they are, the kind of chaotic nature of who they are, and then the fact that they need to be delivered precisely to a battlefield to do something precise. I mean, it's certainly the first two years, everything's an absolute, total disaster. It's characterised by disaster airborne operations, which is why, you know, when you come to, you know, Normandy, is a great success. The operation's a great success, but actually, when you look at it, it's characterised by total chaos. And then Arnhem, where the, the, the very strange thing that happens, that the landings are all a fantastic success and all go off absolutely perfectly, largely because everyone finally wants something to go well in that, that part of it to go well, and then everything else is a total disaster. <laughs> so, so disaster stalks the scene with airborne stuff, and there's only really... There's the Bruneval raid where they, where John Frost, who ends up at Arnhem Bridge with two power, he he takes a company of paratroopers and they they steal a Würzburg ra radar from the French coast, and that goes perfectly well. And I think one man's killed, and it's they're picked up by the submarine. It all goes off absolutely perfectly, and that is about it yeah. for airborne operations in the Second World for the British for airborne operations in the Second World War. But then all the German ones are complete disasters as well. Well, as we as we head towards Overlord, though, which you know. Mm -hmm. 
you start to bring in maybe one of the central points of the shape of the book, which you said at the beginning, which is that fundamentally it's a war, you know, the trajectory towards winning the war is a trajectory of industrial superiority and material and, you know, tanks, which you... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get a sort of vibe from this that you're really personally pretty invested in tanks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a sort of way in which the prose picks up. You talk about, you know, oh, tanks are great because it's a sort of top trump, you know, aspect to them. I mean... Are tanks one of your big things? Do you have a kind of basement no, for little tank no, battles? And... No, I'm just beguiled by the subject. You're absolutely right. What, if this is a, an industrial war, then you end up looking at the fruits of the industry and go, well, who's, whose factories are delivering the best thing for the circumstances? And so, and, and I think what's, you know, what is interesting about armoured fighting vehicles, tanks you know, in particular, is that they, they sort of offer, they do offer you a glimpse of how that society sees itself in terms of how it will fight. So the, the the American ones are mass produced, but they're super efficient. They run well. They're sort of saying something about American industrial culture, whereas the Russian ones are mass produced, but they're but they're not particularly reliable, and they're they're certainly not nice things to sit in. You know, having driven around in a Sherman tank, driven around in a T thirty four, the T thirty four, they're more sharp things to bang your head on, basically. So what's that telling us? And then the British British tanks, you know reflect sort of British priorities and British thinking. And, you know, that Japanese tanks have no escape hatches, whereas German ones do. And you could argue, well, what does that tell you? What's that <laughs> saying about? What's that saying about these cultures? So they're, they're, they're interesting in that respect. But, you know, Overlord becomes this materiel schlacht. It, it descends into this, because the Germans don't fight the way the Allies are expecting them to fight. They expect, they expect the Germans to do what they'd be doing in Italy, which is, which is fight back in phases and fall away, you know, put up a stiff resistance then to fall away. Whereas, in fact, the Germans decide to hug the coast. General reflection is really stupid of them because they're under naval gunnery that whole time and have a, you know, or for a lot of it, have a very bad time of it as a result. But the tanks become, they become the sort of mode of expression of the fighting in Normandy. And what's interesting as well is that the, the fire higher densities than, say, on the Eastern Front, which is often seen as where the big tank battles happen, like Kursk, for instance, but the, the densities of formations in Normandy is much, much higher than on the Eastern Front. So you've got these bigger armoured battles. And the eternal problem with tanks is how you integrate them into what you're doing, rather than allow them to become unintegrated. And in Normandy, that's the key. That's the the thing the British get right, really, really, really right. Which is Well, that's the point at which I, th- I think, to paraphrase you, you say, you know, to start with, we were trying to learn how to do roughly what the Germans were doing. Yeah. And then in order to win, we had to kind of go beyond that. In what way did we yes. go beyond that? Everyone in 1940, with the, with the Panzer breakthrough at the Ardennes, and, you know, the idea that, and, and after all, that particular success has many, many fathers, which is what's quite interesting. About it. Is it Guderian? Is it Hitler? You know, whoever's, whoever's thinking, Manstein, whoever's thinking it is. But basically, they, the British and the Americans look at that and think, ooh, you know, great big, great big tank formation came bursting through. That's what we need to do. And there'd been a sort of, a sort of knitting circle of people in between the wars writing to each other about this. People in Britain, people in America, people in Germany, all you know, all reading each other's journals and keeping up on this what you would what you would do with your tanks. And everyone's beguiled by what the Germans do in 1940. But actually, the Germans are able to do that largely because the French army sort of hasn't got its act together, doesn't turn up at critical moments, doesn't have radio integration the way the Germans do. And in actual fact. Everyone's moving towards integrating radios into stuff anyway. That's coming. British, it's just the head start the Germans have that enables 1940. And so the circumstances 
change as the war goes so that you can't do what the Germans were going to do in 1940 because what you what you are doing is changing well what they're doing is changing and, and so you're you're stuck if you're trying to solve the problems of 1940 and 1944 you're never going to do that and the evolution of of integrated arms really means that the tanks finally have to integrate properly and there's been this idea in the desert where the tanks the tanks will go off and do their own thing go off and so glorious cavalry charges, all that sort of idea. Although there's some academic dispute about that. We won't get bogged down in that. But 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 basically, by the time you get to Normandy, everyone knows that in the end that's not that's not going to work. And you've got to integrate it. And there are attempts to sort of some people think, well, I can do things just with my tanks. And there is a, a very famous battle that sort of is too famous in a way, Operation Goodwood, where where the British try and do stuff with tanks because there's an short of, of infantry, basically, and they try and do stuff with armor alone. It doesn't work because you've got to integrate. And they're trying to sort of do what they think happened in what they think the Germans did in 1940. After all, the other thing is, is everyone misunderstands what the Germans have done in 1940 anyway. <laughs> so everyone's thinking it's based on what they think happened rather than what may have actually happened. The, after all, fog, fog of war builds in. I mean, a great, ex- a really great example of that to just hop back to you know the airborne thing is there's the very famous glider raid at Eben Mal on a fort in Belgium where the Germans land gliders on on this fortress and capture it, hold it up. Which, which opens up the Albert Canal, which means you can get into Belgium. Even in 1943, the British are still arguing about whether that happened or not. And this is them studying what the Germans did. They can't decide whether it happened or whether it was a piece of propaganda. So they don't know. So, so you think all of the thinking that's going into what you're going to do by the time you get to Normandy, you have to move on from what your assumptions from 1940 are. You have to move into the reality of what you're dealing with. Well, funny, there, there is... To me, a moving final chapter in which you, you you know, step off the kind of big tactics, grand strategy, yeah. Yeah. famous names thing and talk about, you know, the poor bloody infantry. Yes. And was it kind of important to you to try and make it intimate at the end? Absolutely. So much of what the book's about is, you know, problems going across people's desks, man management, you know, marrying up your technological problems with your with your management, really, and, and and all that sort of stuff. But actually, you've still got to get the bloke in the foxhole to do it. And I try and say at the start of the book, it's all very well being able to build 100,000 tanks. You've still got to persuade people to get in them, drive them, and kill people with them, and at the risk of your own life. You've got to, somehow you've got to do that. And, and that, in the end, that comes down to infantry subalterns in the infantry. That comes down to lieutenants, who were probably 19, 20 years old, who certainly in the case of Peter White, who's in, you know, was, he, was, he was, what, 13, 14 when the war began. You know, he, he probably thought it's an unimaginable. I know when I was 13, the idea of being 18 was an essential unimaginable, being a grown-up. You know, it's, it's a far and distant thing. And what's really striking is is very often people talk about the Second World War. Well, it's over by, by, by 1944, 1945. It's been decided the war's just sort of petering out. And that's not what's going on in Northwest Europe. That's not what's happening. Germans are fighting to the last round if they can, very often. And what you have to do to mobilise yourself in a world that is, you know, essentially chaotic, where be, the difference between alive and dead is nothing. And, and this fellow Peter White, who I, who I base this chapter around, his memoir with the jocks is the most extraordinary book. You know, you, you could read it as a combat memoir, or you could read it as an existential musing on the n- nature of life and death, the temporary nature of life and the what is life even, the difference between the matter of a dead man and the matter of a, a man who's alive. It's about that as much as anything else. 
and that you you could be talking to someone and will you be talking to them in 10 minutes time you've no way of knowing because either of you could be dead or both of you and he writes about that a lot and that's at the that's at the core of what being a infantry officer is you know at any stage of the war but in the la- the last stage of the war when suppose you've got it won and suppose you have this massive material preponderance you know even in this allied army with massive material preponderance there's time where there aren't any tanks that we can't sorry we can't get tanks to you you're gonna have to do that without our help and there's a central episode where that happens where they they can't bring the artillery to bear they can't bring the tanks to bear so they have to they have to do it poor bloody infantry style and that that i think you know the book starts with montgomery and vd you know which just seems a billion miles from the business of you're walking over a hill and you know white thanks himself that he's decided to carry a rifle and not a sten gun because it doesn't it makes it less obvious that he's an officer because they'll shoot the officer first if they go into an ambush and there's stuff like that, which just, you know, when I was a little boy, I liked the second world war. Cause it looked like this fantastic adventure. And now I'm, you know, I've given up childish things. <laughs> <laughs> now I am a man, you know, you can, you can see that. And when he talks about the grease pouring out of his rifle, cause the rifle's so hot from firing, you're right there in what it means to be in that situation, I think. And, and it, you have to have that when you're writing about the second world war, you can't, you can't pretend that isn't what it is. You can't get hung up on generals. You've got to go all the way down to the bloke in the foxhole, I think. Yeah. Now, finally, just before I let you go, you know, this is a book that argues that an army that was losing a war terribly can learn to win it. Yeah. Do you worry that Russia could learn to win the war in Ukraine? I think one of the really interesting things is that the Germans start by winning war and then learn to lose it. And if you want... To, to flip it. And they do that because they're a society that's bad at processing information, a closed society. It's bad at processing information and has a completely sclerotic and dysfunctional command structure. So I think I've answered your question. Well, I think <laughs> if, we, if we've got to compare the Russians to anybody, if you want to compare Ukraine to anyone, the, the, the Ukrainians are essentially getting lend-lease, aren't they, at the moment? And uh, maybe the Ukrainians are the Russians in this situation and the you know, all the Soviets, if you want, and it's it's flipped around. I don't know. I ju- it just it just it looks like you know, open societies have at least the sort of given them to be able to try and figure this out. What they need is the time to be able to work it out, but they don't necessarily because the Vietnam War is a case in point that preponderance of stuff and having an open society doesn't necessarily win you anything. I can only write about the Second World War. I'm not, I, you know, it's what we do on the podcast. We just say not interested. 1946, couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Staying in your lane. Al Murray, thanks Absolutely. very much indeed for your time. It's been my total pleasure. Thanks, sir.